Bibles this morning, please turn to the fifth chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 5, which I guess was clear when I said fifth, but we'll go with that. The arguments that Paul is making in Romans build on top of one another in every chapter. Paul is adamant to preach the whole gospel to the Christians in Rome. We know that from 115. The reason he's so adamant is because although clearly from the letter, although they get it and they know the terms and concepts that he's using, there's still a very large sense in which they don't get it. And so he's uh, adamant to explain the different implications of the gospel to them. Because if they don't get the gospel and how the biblical implications of it are meant to affect their lives and their worldviews, they cannot be the church God wills them to be. And that has been true since the New Testament and always will be true until our Lord Jesus Christ returns. So uh, this morning, uh, it, it's, it's a dense argument here, so it takes us a little time to work through it. I don't want to be pedantic or boring or anything like that, but please um, just try to, to um, forgive me if it gets a little thick. I don't mean to confuse anyone, but listen to the final words of the first 11 verses of chapter 5, verse 11. He said, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received, have now received reconciliation. What Paul wants to do now is expound on the fact of, of what he just said, that humanity has been reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 12 through 21 this morning are uh, an exposition. They're an explanation of the objective reconciliation of all to God that he's just said is there. Bringing up the truth of this reconciliation becomes the basis for describing the fact that what was accomplished in Jesus Christ is a reversal, a complete reversal of the fall of Adam and is valid for all humanity. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so righteousness came into the world through one man, Jesus, and life through His righteousness. Humanity now lives under the reign of God's grace in Jesus Christ, where those who knew only death through sin may have life once more through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me pray and we'll walk through this passage. Father, I thank You this morning for the sufficiency and certainty and authority of Your objective, eternal, infallible, inerrant Word. God, help me, help all who listen to receive this Word with humility, with meekness, God, for it is able to save our souls. Lord, please help this not to become uh, overly repetitive or, or uh, needlessly dense. God, please be with me. Help me speak clearly. I pray, Father, that we would believe in light of what we read. Every one of us, every person in this room is loved by You. May this Word proclaim this to them. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 12, Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, 
who was a type of the one who was to come. So Paul begins a new thought here, a new piece of the gospel to understand in verse 12. And then almost immediately he cuts away from it for a few verses at the end of verse 12 to introduce this type versus anti-type comparison of Adam to Jesus in verses 13 and 14. That, that's a concept that has never come out in Scripture, at least not with this type of clarity, right? Adam is a type of Jesus, Paul. They couldn't be more different. Adam threw the whole world into sin and death. How is Adam a type, a picture of Christ? He'll explain it here. Then he'll make sure he adds some caveats to that in verses 15 through 17 so there isn't any misunderstanding about this correspondence between Adam and Jesus before he fully states and applies that point, why it has any meaning for us in verses 18 to 21. So that's where we're going this morning. Notice here that sin, right off the bat, sin is not just the bad deeds that we do. It's not just doing something wrong. Sin, Madam Sin, if you will, the capital S, is a malevolent, death-dealing, enslaving power that rules over the entire human race of Adam. In fact, the text is saying, until Moses at least, right, every descendant of Adam, every human being died, all because of Adam's sin in the garden. Notice in verse 13, though, they couldn't really be charged with their own sins because God had not yet given all humanity a written code of law yet. But they were still all categorized as sinners because of Adam's sin. That's how powerful the reign of sin is. Because Adam is our progenitor, the first human being, and we all technically come from him. Sin is such a malevolent, enslaving, comprehensive power that every human being born has that in their literal DNA. So when we read all sinned in verse 12, it has a very, very important meaning. The fact that all sinned because Adam did is the point at which Adam is a type of Jesus, believe it or not. Of course, everyone between Adam and Moses actually committed sins, right? But Adam's original sin is their inherited sin and is sufficient all by itself, just as that, to bring all of them under the sense of death. One of the biggest mistakes I think we make when trying to understand God and sin and salvation is that we think that all we have to worry about is our own account, right? What we do or don't do, what we can control so we, we think things like, well, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross might be what people like Jeffrey Dahmer need, but not me. I mean, I, I know that I'm not perfect, but I don't do, you know, things that are that horrible. I'm not that bad. Well, here's the thing, right? You can't choose your family. You, you, you are born into the family you're born into. We are born into Adam's family because we're human beings. We're born with Adam's rebellion in our DNA. We're sentenced to death from the moment of our conception. Because of his sin. And then we end up sinning like that because we're sinners. Because that's what Adam was. There's not a person on the earth that can keep themselves from sinning. Not, not one. That's not fair, right? That we need salvation before we ever do or say a thing. Right? So, so you come into the world needing salvation. You don't work your way into needing Jesus for you. To be conceived is to need Christ because we're from Adam. Again, that, that's not fair. And I would just say this. I don't, I don't think this is a satisfying 
thing to say, but it helps us at least get there. The last thing anybody in this room wants is for God to start being fair. Right? Nobody wants that. Nobody. The discussion of our, our, our sin and our sentence for it and our salvation, they're way bigger than these little schoolroom arguments we can get into about fairness and all of that. And I'm not saying that's not intelligent or, or stupid. Or, I'm saying that it's, it's bigger. Us humans sitting in a room trying to figure this out is, is like throwing, you know, water bottles at a, a nuclear fire. I mean, are there nuclear fires? You know what I mean. The mushroom thing, right? So, bringing in Moses here in verse 13, when Paul does that, he's letting us know that that law, the law being mentioned here, is the law that was given to Moses by God for Israel on Mount Sinai. It's the written code. Right, Paul will come back to that in verse 20. Again, actual sins were committed between Adam and Moses, but during that era in history, there was no explicit divine code God had given anyone to follow by which he would charge those sins against the ones who were committing them. Notice that, and we're still using the language of counting here in verse 13. Someone is always counting. I, I don't pretend to know how to make sense of everything here. I know it seems like it's not fair that someone else's sin is counted against us. We have no choice in the matter. Even though most of us, if we're honest, know that we would have sinned whether we were Adam's children or not. But when we want to complain that Adam's sin was counted to us when we did not commit it, then we, if we're going to be consistent, must reject the righteousness of Christ being counted to us since we did not perform it. So if we go where we think we've got God back in a corner, we've just taken ourselves out of salvation. If you can't accept what somebody else did, then don't accept the righteousness of Jesus if that's the principle we want to live by, right? Genesis 2.17 functioned as explicit law for Adam. Write to him, do not eat of that tree. You can eat of all the other ones in the garden. Don't eat that one. Adam can be charged on the basis of breaking that. But for the woman, for Eve, and all the rest until Moses, when the written code of law came in, there was no such law that was given directly to their ears. And yet in verse 14, the link between sin and death has been made. Oh, so whether you have a written code in front of you or not, if you're a human being, if you come from Adam, you die. Because of Adam's sin, death reigns. The need, the need for law in order for sins to be charged against individuals then has been established, right? So the law came in, or we'll get to that in a few minutes. So not only do we need forgiven for the sin of Adam that has been transferred to us, we also need forgiven for all the ways we personally and willfully break the law that God has given to us, the, the commandments He has given even though in verse 13, sin isn't counted where there is no law, all those people still died. Why? Because they sinned in the original sin of Adam. That's how God, who is counting, counts it. Paul says, therefore, that death reigned from Adam to Moses. This is the first time we see that word in the text related to uh, associating sin with the era of death. That word reigned. So there's a, there's a kingdom that was set up when Adam sinned. There's a king of that kingdom, and it's Death, that's who ruled then. Death because of sin. 
that's the question at issue here, then, in these verses. Who reigns over humanity now? Or are we stuck in Adam's reign forever? This is the way it is. Adam's sin brought death to all of us. We don't need to try to put God in court. This is the way it is. What we need to do is hope that since that's the way it is, and there's nothing we can do about it, that God will step in and do something. Because if He doesn't, there is no salvation. This is a waste of my time and your time, right? Adam's sin was that specific transgression of Genesis 2.17. The sins that were still sins but not like the transgression of Adam are those things God counted as sins without any specific law code. So it, it wasn't like God didn't consider murder to be murder until the law of Moses came, but there was no law of Moses at that time. Now we're to understand that in some way related to all this, that he's about to explain, in light of what we just said, Adam is a type of the one who was to come, of Jesus Christ. There was something about Adam that was very much like Jesus. There's something about what Adam did when he sinned that is very much like what Jesus did when he obeyed. Right? That phrase introduces very clearly for us who was a type of the one who is to come. That phrase introduces how Paul is going to interpret Scripture here. Okay, this is so important for us in verse 14. Some of the things in the Old Testament were types of things to come by God's design. It doesn't mean you can make a wax nose out of the Old Testament and put Jesus wherever you want. It means that now we know when we read that line, oh, okay, so there could be a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. Notice that Paul does not say, this is very important, notice that Paul does not say that Adam was a type of Jesus by quoting any specific verse. There isn't a specific verse that says that. If you just read the Old Testament, you wouldn't know that. You would not make that connection. What Paul is doing, because he can, because Christ taught him and gave him the authority to do this, is interpreting the biblical text about real people and events that happened a long time ago in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's his interpretive principle of the Hebrew Scriptures. The event and the person, the last fall or the fall in Adam, those are historical events that actually happened. And there are significant points of correspondence there between Adam and Jesus, but they're hidden in the moments in which they happened. You didn't see them there and can only be understood or discerned from the latter perspective of the anti-type shining his light back on it, right? So the Old Testament cannot be understood properly until Jesus comes, completes his work, and then tells us what all of it meant. doesn't mean it didn't happen or is it literal or something. It all happened. It's all real. It's all true. But its full meaning cannot be known until you have Jesus come and break it all open for us. Christ's fulfillment of God's plan at the beginning of the end of time, if you will, at the cross, shows us in what sense Adam was a corresponding contrast to Jesus way back at the time of creation. Adam and Jesus are two men in stark contrast with one another who both inaugurated their own worlds. One is a world of death. The other is a world of salvation. So the point of correspondence here between Adam and Jesus is the significance of the one for the many. That's what Paul is, is getting at here. That's how Adam is a type of Jesus, in the way that one affects many. 
Paul wants to show us how at the cross, Jesus established life and salvation for all. While at creation, Adam established sin and death for all. Adam had a specific command from God to obey. And that, that's an interesting thing to think about. What had to be obeyed was said to Adam. How did Eve learn it? From Adam. So it may be that we are charged with Adam's sin and not Eve's. It's kind of funny because she ate the fruit first because Adam did not deliver God's word clearly to Eve, which is why Satan was able to successfully tempt her with the words, did God really say? Did Eve know for sure what God really said? That's what the enemy did. That is where the serpent attacked Eve. How could she know for sure? The transgression was Adam's. Adam's sin corrupted Eve. This unleashed rebellion among human beings. The sentence of death came upon Adam. And from there on out, sin has made us its prey. Adam and all his descendants are born into the reign of the tyrant. Death because of his sin. Adam and Jesus are the lords of two different ages or worlds. One of death through sin. The other of life through righteousness. They are alike. That's what he gets to in verses 18 and 19. But are also very different. Which is what Paul addresses now in these next few verses. Pick it up in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For... If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So there is a correspondence between Adam and Jesus. But right away, Paul says they are not equivalent to each other. However, Paul is addressing then the first caveat in calling Adam a type of Jesus. Justification that Jesus gives his gift to us is not a curse. It brings life, not death. So the free gift is not like the trespass of Adam in the kind of gift it is, first of all. What Adam gave us led to death. Jesus gives us a gracious gift. So the first issue, again, is how the one has affected the many. But in verse 16, we find that the free gift is also not like the one man's sin in its result in what it brings about. The result of Adam's one sin, one, is the judgment that has brought death and condemnation to every single human being without exception. But in Christ, what followed all those sins that followed Adam resulted in justification. What a difference, beloved. How much greater is Jesus than Adam for humanity? You see, Adam doesn't have the last word. Sin and death do not have the last word. The grace of God in Jesus Christ results in justification, a right relationship with God and peace with God that sets us irrevocably on the path to eternal life. It gives the polar opposite of the judgment and sentence that Adam's trespass will bring on the last day. 
Look again at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, which he's established, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see the, the switch there. You go from being reigned by death because of Adam to reigning in life because of Christ. So now with the phrase, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We need to understand that what Jesus accomplished is in a sense an objective reconciliation for everyone. It's there for you. It's yours. What Jesus did actually forgave sins, not potentially, and justified and reconciled. But Paul is not teaching universalism. That everyone is saved no matter what. Absolutely not. That's not what Scripture teaches. That would be an evil, a false contradiction. Remember, the free gift and its result are not like the result of the trespass. They both have an effect on everyone. But for the free gift to be counted to us individually, we must receive it. Right? And, and so you could hear, and I, I used to, I was talking with my wife this morning, I used to argue against this point so hard, not realizing that I was being inconsistent in, in, in illogical in my thinking and unbiblical, right? Because we have this, we, we, do, we all do this. I would argue my point by saying you're trying to heap um, things onto God from the earth and you can't do that. You can't understand Him that way. But if you want to be consistent and apply that principle everywhere, you could look here and say, now wait a minute, if, if, if justification has, has been objectively done for everyone, if everyone is, like Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 5 again, if the world has been reconciled to God, then how do people go to hell? That's double jeopardy and God would never do that. Why in the world would we heap double jeopardy, Earth's idea, onto God and say you have to submit to that or it's not fair? It's not right. Beloved, I don't know how it works out. What I know is the words on the page. Right? That, that's all I want to go by now. I'm at that stage in my life. I don't want to mess around anymore. What else can I do? So just re- remember, we won't get to biblical, biblically sound conclusions if anywhere in our theology we're, we're doing what we say the other side is doing and not seeing it. Right? That you can't heap these man-made ideas onto God. God isn't subject to double jeopardy laws, beloved. That's just not the way it is, right? There's no deficiency whatsoever in the work of Jesus Christ for us. Well, did he waste some of his blood? No. No. And what if he did? Does that, that make it not have any meaning anymore? That he lavished it? The work of Jesus has the power to set every single human being that has ever lived, is living, and will ever live free from the condemnation of Adam's and our own sins. But his gift will apply to us in that much more way of verse 17, individually, subjectively, only if we receive it as our own. Like if if I put my wife in my will and will her every, which I I have, she's my wife, and, and will her everything, it's hers. Legally, it belongs to her. But if she doesn't go get it, doesn't mean I didn't give it, doesn't mean I wasted it. But I did 
do it for her. It's hers if she takes it. To receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ does away forever with all of our sin, all our guilt, all our condemnation, everything with which we were condemned under the reign of death. There is nothing death can do, nothing death can do to claim victory now over the risen Christ for you, for all who believe. Nothing. The work of Jesus is stronger than our record. To receive this gift is to pass from being ruled by death to being ruled by Jesus. So we understand in a text like this, okay, so all human beings are slaves to something. We all have a master. The question is, who is yours? Who is your king? Under whose reign are you living right now? The subjects of King Jesus in verse 17 will themselves reign as kings alongside him. So again, having introduced the biblical truth that Adam was a type of Christ as a means of interpreting Scripture in verse 14, Paul immediately shows how there are, however, caveats to that correspondence. Neither in the causes, verse 15, or in the effects, verses 16 through 17, is there an exact correspondence because the work of God is greater than the work of Adam. It's always more than expected. It's more surprising, more marvelous. Jonathan Grothy talks about that. There is continuity from type to anti-type. Sure, but they're not apples to apples. There is also this element in the new which surpasses and fulfills and even overturns the old. The old cannot overturn the new, ever. The new has been overturning the old since it began. The one trespass had the power in it to cause death to spread to all. Absolutely. That's verse 15. But grace is surprising. God's free acceptance of sinful man because of Christ? That's what He brings? The restoring grace that brings about the new creation gives more, much more than expected to those who receive it. Life with God in Christ is better. It's better than the paradise Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. It gives the gift of not just being alive, but a royal life. Being a co-ruler with Christ in 2 Timothy 2, 12, where Paul also writes, We learn the greater glory of the new creation in Christ and of the restored life of eternity in this passage. That informs all that better talk in a letter like Hebrews. It also shows us, in verse 17 especially, that the effects of original sin are universal. They're indiscriminate to all humankind, without exception. And the reality of the objectivity of the reconciliation Jesus accomplished, but without compromising on the necessity for each person to personally receive this gift, for it to apply to them. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So Paul is still working from the perspective of Adam as a type of Christ. You see that language there? Like him. He's like him in some way. Here it is that Adam's one act of sin led all men to condemnation. 
while Jesus' one act of righteousness, one act, leads presently now, as we speak, to justification and life for all men in verse 18. So here is where we're meant to understand the whole life of Christ in which He lived in total submission to His Father's will, which culminated in His death on Calvary as His one act of righteousness, having been sent from heaven to accomplish one thing from start to finish, redemption, justification, life for those who receive that life, His life, as their own by faith. Put Him on my account. That is what it is to be made right with God. And that's all there is to be made right with God. There is the passive obedience of Jesus. We could talk about the He has by virtue of being God in the flesh who is holy. And the active obedience of Jesus, what He was doing on the earth, being obedient as God in human flesh from birth to death, never sinning, perfectly submitting in every way to the Father's will. This not only gives forensic justification to us in the sense that we have been forgiven and counted righteous, it also gives us the benefit of being in a right relationship with God, both now and forever. No matter what you're going through today, no matter what the accuser is yelling at you or your own flesh is telling you, Believer, you are reconciled to God and at peace with Him. This is the Word of the Lord. Life is the catch-all term for what we're talking about. and It is the result of the righteous act of Jesus. It is available to all to be received by faith. Now verse 19 is going to illuminate all this. It becomes the basis for verses 12 through 18 as Paul picks back up the thought he began back in verse 12. Okay? In 19. So just pretend that this is what follows verse 12. Alright? For, as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Again, we understand Paul is not teaching universalism what he's saying is that now that Christ has come, the reign of death has been undone. It, it, it's, that's your decision to stay in it, but it's been undone. Now that Christ has come, it's undone. Adam's, Adam's trespass has indeed made many sinners under death. But now, not all who were born under the reign of death, not all, for Jesus' obedience has indeed made many who were under the reign of death through sin now righteous and will continue to do that. All those who receive the gift of God's grace for us in Jesus are counted righteous by God and will live forevermore. Notice the extremely important change in the tenses of those verbs in verse 19. Were made by Adam past tense, and will be made, future tense, by Jesus. So, to make many righteous is an aspect of Christ's work that began the new creation when He died and rose again and continues all through our lives and into the future to carry us there as well. 
to eternal life. What Paul is saying, look, in your future on Judgment Day, when you get there to the end, the result of what Jesus did at the cross is precisely what will take you through that to life. The focus here is not then on the now of our experience, right? I don't feel like that. I don't feel righteous like I'm in a right relationship with God, justified, freed, forgiven. The focus isn't on our experience of this gift, but on the end-time work of God in Christ, which reverses the effects of the past-time disobedience of Adam. All that he gave to me is now taken away from me. It's banished, it's conquered, it's ended, it's over, because it's finished for me in Christ, for all who believe. The salvation completed at Calvary then, way back then. That's the basis of all the present tense announcements about believers and righteousness for us that we read in Scripture. I can appropriate sentences like this to me because Jesus died for me 2,000 years ago. That's how I know they're mine. That's how you know you're loved by God. Don't look to what you can see. Don't trust what you hear come from the inside. Don't trust the world. Don't trust the enemy. Don't, don't trust your flesh. You and I know that we are loved by God and counted righteous because God says so. So especially in the darkness, which is deafening, you remember the present tense power of the righteousness and sufficiency of Jesus Christ for you and over you all the time. The deed of the one is determinative for all under its reign, right? What Adam did determines everything for everybody under his reign or death's reign that he brought in. The deed of Jesus is determinative for everyone under his reign. This is why we believe that we are eternally secure. And we are. All those who remain in Adam are condemned by Adam. All those who remain in Christ or are in Christ are justified by Christ. So a transfer now, beloved, from one sphere to the other, from death in Adam to life in Christ, is necessary in order for the benefit of Christ's work and of justification to be realized. Only faith in Him can do this. The servant of Isaiah 53, by his death, has indeed made many to be accounted righteous. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 20 refers specifically to what Paul referenced earlier. Remember the law code that was delivered at Sinai, the Ten Commandments. So the law, remember this as you try to understand and interpret Scripture. The law is not ultimate. The law is a secondary thing, beloved. 
remember this forever. Law was not God's cure for the fall of man in the garden. The first word in Genesis 3, after the fall and the curse, is a word of promise, not law. You have fallen. Here's what you need to do to reconcile it. No, no, no. That is not the gospel. You have fallen. So I'm going to send my son. That's a promise. Before I ever existed and was already, because of Adam, because I was going to exist, condemned, God made provision for my life. And he knew I didn't deserve it and never would. And he made his promise anyway. It has never been because of me that I have life or salvation. And never will be. Never will be. I'm heaping up more accountability as a pastor, not more merit. Law served a greater purpose than it appeared to be. It served a justifying purpose. Law came in to solidify the fact that what Jesus did is infinitely greater than what Adam did. That's all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, as Colossians 1 tells us, including the law, including the garden, including Adam and Eve, including Israel and Moses and all these things. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If Jesus is reigning and He's a Lord and God of grace, then that's what reigns. That's what will be ultimate. So what you want in life is to have Jesus. That's the point. The purpose of giving the law, the purpose, the Bible says, the reason it was given was to increase trespasses, make more sins. That's not just the result of the law. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that was the purpose of the law, to increase transgression, and it served its purpose perfectly. The law came in and revealed, oh, we're all Adam, basically. We're all like him. God gives a clear word. We break it. That's what we do. Sin did increase exponentially every time a human being was born. Even the best of us were horrible. But God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than our law breaking. It was back then. It is now. And it will be forever. Grace the reason God gave the law to increase trespasses, you find, is in verse 21. So that, love it when Paul is so clear, helps so much, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was so that His gracious will that He had from before the foundation of the world might be done. Because that's who He is. He didn't change who He was at the fall. God's creation is revealing to us from start to finish progressively and finally and fully in Christ just who this Creator is and what He is like. Even though we are going to sin and get everything cursed and turn everything into a mess. That's who we are. This is who He is. Right? Grace abounded where sin increased so that God could show us who He is. So that just as sin reigned in death from Adam to Moses to Jesus... 
And now for everyone else and everywhere else where Christ is not Lord, grace reigns over all of it through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The result of all that God has done is the reign of grace. That's where you and I are this morning. The sphere of sin's reign is death. You can walk right into it. You look at it every morning in the mirror like I do. The sphere of grace's reign is life. We can't see that. But we can hear it. And need to every day in the gospel. Virtue, good behavior, is not the antithesis of sin. Grace through faith is the antithesis of sin. Who God is is the antivenom to the serpent, to the curse that brought death. The Sinai Code, the law, it now belongs in the reign of death. That's where it's still doing its killing power for us. We have life in and through Jesus Christ. And it is so for all who believe. Beloved, it is the the realm of grace. It is in the realm of grace that the righteousness and life that so many work so hard for through the law will actually be attained. The, The fulfillment of these things for us is only under the reign of grace. Under the reign of death, all that trying to obey the law will do is continue to kill us. But because we have life in Christ, we are free now to live our lives with abandon in love towards our neighbors and our enemies. And by the way, they're one and the same. Now we can and don't need to fear falling short because we are in Christ. His work at Calvary is leading me now. When I succeed and when I fail, it's still His righteousness leading me to eternal life. I'm free. You're free to obey and you're free to fail. You're free to blow it. You're free to succeed because it's all on Christ. Righteousness and life are gifts. That's the only way they become ours is if they're given to us. And God gives them only to empty-handed faith in His grace. The grace of the God who justifies sinners by His own Son's righteousness. Grace is the undisputed champion for sinners. Neither sin, nor death, nor law can conquer the grace of God for us in Christ. The reign of grace means that finally, after only death, you and I may and will live again. Job's question That poor man is finally answered. If a man dies, will he live again? Yes. For we know, I know that our Redeemer lives. And in the end, we will stand. He will stand on the earth. We will stand with Him. We will be His train. Right? Humanity now lives under the reign of God's grace in Jesus Christ where those who once knew only death through sin may have life once more through the righteousness of of Jesus Christ. I would like to close with the words of another song. This isn't a congregational, it's just a phenomenal song. Listen to these words, which, which just take, it's by the, the Grey Havens, wonderful band, just a husband and wife, just takes Romans 5 and makes it into a song. And then we'll stand. 
these words are for you because they are the words of Scripture. A voice came and spoke to the silence. The word took on beauty and form. The form took its shape as a garden was born. Then man from the dust came reflecting all goodness and beauty and life. But he lowered his gaze as he listened to the face of low desire. This, my soul, you were born, you were born into. What this man, Adam, has done, it all extends to you. Let the words shake on down along your spine and ring out true that you may find new life. The voice came and swords blocked the garden. None could return with their lives. A curse there was placed upon every man to face for all of time. No wisdom of man or rebellion could deliver new life out of death. But the voice with the curse spoke a promise with the word would take on flesh. This, my soul, you were born, you were born into. What this man has done, it all extends to you. Let the words shake on down along your spine and ring out true that you might find. Then the perfect Son of Man took the place the voice had planned since the garden and before. He took the swords and cursed the grave. There's nothing more to separate us from the promise. The words of a living hope. This, my soul, you were born, you were born into. What this man Jesus has done, it all extends to you. Let the words shake on down along your spine and ring out truth that you may find new life.